The Amazon Prime original series, Lore, returns October 19th with new true tales. Inspired by Aaron Mankey's terrifying podcast, the six-episode series includes two stories never heard on the podcast before. From an executive producer of The Walking Dead and an executive producer of The Exorcist, Lore explores haunting real-life tales that give rise to our modern-day legends and myths. Explore some of history's biggest nightmares, from serial killers to bloodthirsty countesses, a cursed clock, and more. The scariest stories are true. Season 1 available now. Watch the new season of Lore October 19th, only on Prime Video. There's a slight content warning this week. It's kind of violent. More so just weird, though it does get kind of dark. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we'll be digging into Finnish mythology, and we'll see why the last thing you want to give a boy with rage issues and no parental supervision is unlimited magical powers. The creature this week is a vicious basket that wants to eat your brain. The good news, though, it's about as smart as a basket. This is Myths and Legends, episode 127, The Boy Who Lived. This is a podcast where I adapt stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is from the Kalevala, a Finnish epic poem I've had requests to cover basically since the beginning of this podcast. It's the National Epic of Finland, put down to paper in 1835 by Finnish writer Elias Lonrot. Though the stories were sourced from Finnish oral folklore and mythology, he traveled all around Finland for 15 years, compiling disparate poems into one massive work. People would sing the poems, passed down to them for generations, and he would record and compile them. Though the work is sourced from and set in Nordic countries, it's unlike anything we've talked about from this region. For one, we haven't talked about any of the deities from the story. They're not Odin or Thor, as in the works of Finland's Scandinavian neighbors, but a distinctive Finnish mythology that shares some elements with nearby European countries. Anyway, this is only one part of the Finnish epic, and we'll definitely get to more of it in time. We're going to jump into a story today of two brothers. You know how you'd fight with your siblings and you take and mess with each other's stuff and it'd be like this whole stupid thing? Well, that's what's going on. Except the two brothers have armies. Real quickly, thank you to everyone who reached out with pronunciation help after last week's show. Thank you, and I'm sorry in advance. We're on our first real vacation in three years, but to do that, we had to bank up multiple weeks of episodes. This was when we recorded ahead of time, and to correct the mispronunciations would mean re-recording the whole episode. Thanks again to all who reached out with help. Dad, what's that? Kalerva looked out his front window, to the smoke rising to the clouds. It was happening. For months, Kalerva had been feuding with his brother, Untamo. It had started innocently enough. Untamo put his fishing nets down in Kalerva's waters, after Clairvo told him over and over again not to. So one day, Clairvo scooped up the fish and went home. Untamo was incensed, but Clairvo brushed him off. The next day, the nets were back in Clairvo's water, his resource, so Clairvo had another idea. When Untamo was out, Clairvo sowed some oats on his brother's land, right behind his house. He would go and water them diligently, and on the day that some of them were harvested, he purposefully went into the front of Untamo's house, knocked on his door, and waited for the man to open it. Calervo strode confidently past his brother, exited out the back door, scooped up the mature oats grown on his brother's land, 
and announced that he'd be back for the rest. When he did come back for the rest of the harvest, he found that, oops, Untamo's ewe had eaten Calervo's crop. Calervo shrugged, and the next day while Untamo's sheep were out grazing, Calervo's dog came out of the forest covered in blood. Turns out that, oops, his dog ate Untamo's ewe. This time, Untamo stood rooted, shaking with rage. Calervo had a big tribe, and so did he. He had men, farmhands, and children. He would put swords and pikes and hooks in all of their hands, and he would repay Calervo for this. With that, he stormed off, leaving Calervo wondering if he had taken things a little bit too far by killing his brother's sheep. Less than a week later, it was confirmed that, yes, he had taken it too far. Calervo's fields were burning, and emerging from that smoke was Untamo's people, each with a weapon in hand, just as his brother had warned. Everything fell into chaos, and slaughter ensued. Calervo's house burned as his tribe fought his brothers, and when the smoke cleared, only one was left alive in the ash. A young woman, Calervo's wife. Untamo wrenched her up and dragged her along with him. Smiling, his revenge was complete. After a couple of months of making the young woman, now a slave, sweep the floors, Untama realized that she tired really easily. He investigated, aka looked at her, and found out that she was eight months pregnant. After that, he cut her work down to just 10 hours a day, to be kind. A boy was born, and Untamo couldn't be happier. The one survivor of his brother's name, and the boy was going to be his. It was almost too perfect. He wanted to name the boy Warrior, but his mother won out. She was a slave, but the infant was still her son, so she named him Culervo, after his father. The boy showed promise early on, in that he was born with a full head of flowing blonde hair, and, when swaddled, he burst through the blanket on day three of life. And I'm not talking like he wiggled out of being swaddled or it was a poor folding job. He shredded it and then kicked through his bassinet. That's how Untamo found the boy one day, sleeping on a bed of splinters. He was excited. He had a warrior on his hands, or at the very least, a slave worth the price of 10. He watched the boy closely as he grew until, at just three months old, he heard the boy in his crib. He wasn't crying. He was whispering. Would I were to get bigger, to grow stronger in body, I'd avenge my father and pay back my mother's tears. Untamo stepped back wide-eyed. Oh yeah, this kid's gotta go. Mythology is full of people leaving children to die. And mostly it's a difficult decision, fraught with misery and terrible consequences. Not so with Untamo. He consulted with a few hags, who told him something that he didn't need to consult with hags to know. Drown him in a barrel. Done and done. Whistling, Untamo dropped the talking infant into a barrel full of water and walked away. He'd have someone else come by and fish him out in a few minutes. An hour later, a servant came by to fish the kid out of the barrel, and when he did, the baby opened his eyes, looked at him, and smiled. In utter shock, the servant dropped baby Colero back in the water and ran away. Three days later, Untamo stood berating the group of hags. The barrel thing obviously didn't work. The woman shrugged. What could they say? 
It worked on all the kids they tried it on. Untamo blinked a moment at the thought. Huh. Anyway, Untamo explained that they had found the boy sitting on the edge of the barrel, a copper rod in his hand. How he got that? They had no idea, but he was fishing. Seeing as this was all totally normal and not alarming at all, did the hags have any other methods to kill this magical talking baby that made threats on people's lives and also taught himself to fish? The solution was as simple as it was incorrect. Untamo ordered his serfs to gather together a bunch of wood, set it ablaze, and then toss the baby on it. The bonfire was so massive that it burned for three days straight. And, at the end of it, the baby was found rolling around in the ashes, laughing. Not a hair on his head singed. At the third attempt, Untamo wasn't even mad. He was just impressed. They tried to hang the infant and left him on the tree for three days. But not only did he not die, they really should have seen that one coming at this point, but he'd broken off a thorn and, swinging close and adjusting his grip, he managed to carve a mural into the side of the tree. It was of men with swords surrounding Untamo's house and killing them. Untamo could see that a powerful magic protected the boy. He didn't know if it was the power of his family watching over him or if he had some sort of latent ability that was keeping him alive, or what. But not only was trying to arrange the death for the kid not working, it was tiring. So Untamo came up with another idea. He sold the boy's mother into slavery, and decided to try and raise the boy as his own son. Okay, well, that was a horrible idea. Untamo thought to himself as he arranged the sale of the adolescent Colervo into slavery. When a three-month-old is whispering threats about you at night and carving elaborate depictions of your death, it's kind of not surprising that that person might be a little hard to control when he gets older. When Colervo was the right age, Untamo put him on his first job as serf in his household. Care for a new baby. Of course, the rageful Colervo knew Untamo and Untamo's tribe had murdered his own family. There had been children in his father's house the day they stormed it. They hadn't been safe. And neither would be Untamo's brood. We're not going to go into it, because it is horrifyingly graphic, but the child that Kulervo was tasked with looking after, well, he died. And so Untamo sat down with the boy. Okay, babysitting obviously wasn't his forte, but what did he want to do? Kulervo replied that he wouldn't feel like a man unless there was an axe in his hand. Soon Tamo gave him an axe and told him to go cut wood. The following week, Untamo stood looking out across the field, the field that used to be his forest not that long ago. He groaned. Kulervo didn't just cut the wood, he reduced it to splinters. The entire resource was now completely unusable. It wasn't until after the child had built completely impenetrable fences with no opening and threshed all the rye to the point that it was also useless then Utamo began to understand that it probably wasn't a good idea to keep this kid around. The next day, he sold him to a nearby blacksmith god, Ilmarinen, and walked home in relief. Even though he received next to nothing for the boy, his Kulervo problems were over forever. And that was priceless. We'll see what happens on this next stage of Calervo's life. But that will be right after this.
Kule ever watched Juntamo leave and gripped the knife. One morning a few years back, he'd been walking in the forest and chanced upon a burned mansion, long desolate. He became still, realizing what it was. His father's house. The one that Untamo had raised long ago. He spent a long time in the ashes. Anything of value had been carried off. And Untamo had ordered anything that would remind the world his brother ever existed to be destroyed. There were countless charred bones. Kulervo had no idea which ones belonged to his family and which ones were the serfs or the slaves. But then a glint caught his eye and he walked over and unearthed a knife. It was a simple iron knife with a hard wooden handle and it somehow survived the blaze. It wasn't much, but it was all he was able to salvage from his family. After his mother left, this was all he had to remind himself of who he was and what he had to do. Kulervo hid it away and when he was sold to the blacksmith god, he brought the knife with him. It was a comfort. The blacksmith god was different, which was a step up compared to Untamo. His wife, though, was a different story. Kulervo didn't know if she had anything against him in general or was just sadistic, but she would make him work all hours of the night, took away even the hay he had to sleep on, and ordered him beaten if he made even the slightest mistake. Still, Kulervo made the best of his situation and improved every day. He didn't complain and soon he didn't make any mistakes either. Now, the wife had no cause to mistreat him. And yet, she was relentless. He got a new job watching over the animals grazing in the fields and when he looked into his pack, he looked back up in confusion. Bread? The wife nodded with a smile. Fresh baked, buttered bread? The wife's smile disappeared. Yeah, bread. Now get out of here. Out watching the cattle graze, Kulervo breathed. It had been a bad couple of years, well, a bad lifetime, but maybe now everything was going to be okay. He had a good job with a kind employer, and even the smith's wife was coming around to him. I mean, bread. And then he heard the snap. Kulevro had been cutting his bread absentmindedly with his knife. The one thing that reminded him of his family. When he hit something hard. His heart beat faster as he pulled out the knife. And saw that it had broken on one of the stones the smith's wife had baked into the bread. She had intended for him to eagerly bite into it and break his teeth. If he had, he would have been less mad. That old rage the one he lived with every day in Untamo's house, began to surge within him. But there was something else, too. A power. One that he had always known, but had forgotten. It was the one thing that had protected him. All those times Untamo tried to end him as a baby. It was now returning, and he knew how to use it. Clairvo looked at the cattle, and knew exactly what his next move would be. Oh, hey, Kulervo. How was lunch? The smith's wife asked when Kulervo returned. He looked up. Oh, oh, it was great. Thanks so much for the bread. That was super nice of you. Anyway, the cows are back and they need to be milked, so tell the person who does that. The wife looked around. Where was the old serf that milked them? It'll be night soon. She turned back to Kulervo, but he was already gone, whistling to himself over the hill. 
his day was over. The wife called out for the old woman, sighed, and stormed out to the cows herself. She didn't know that the old woman was standing on the other side of the room, rooted in place, invisible and inaudible, yelling out to her master that she was stuck. She heard her. Something was going on. The wife fumed as she looked at the pail and rolled up her sleeves. When she found that old woman, the thing she was going to do for making her come out here and debase herself like this, angrily, she opened the cow pen and immediately realized that all the cows were watching her. The wife looked around in alarm. That was strange. The cows never seemed so laser-focused on anything, let alone a person. They started to fan out, almost as if they were surrounding her. She walked up to the closest cow and set her stool down, grabbing the udders and getting to work, but even though the udders were swollen with milk, nothing came out. Then, the wife blinked. She wasn't tugging on the udders of a cow, but those of a massive she-wolf. In fact, there wasn't a cow in the pen. It was full of wolves and bears. The wife staggered backwards, but only managed a short scream before the first wolf was on her. Smiling, Colervo whistled as he went back to the pile of hay he called home, listening to the animals feed behind him. It was easy to pack. The only thing that Colervo had that meant anything to him was that broken knife. He didn't know where he would go or what he would do, but he did know that he didn't want to be here when the smith god put two and two together and learned that Culervo's latent magical abilities had manifested, and he used them to kill all the smith's cows and cast an illusion that made the wolves and bears look like the dead livestock, and then lured said dead livestock into a pen where he tricked the man's wife into milking them and getting eaten as is the super common MO that anyone would piece together immediately. As he strode across swamps, Colervo sang. He sang to push away the other thoughts, that he was unloved, alone, in a world full of people who only hated him and abused him. That night, after traveling for a day sprinting through the forest and huddling up next to a log, he stared off into the swamp. He had power now, and no one would ever hurt him again. And then he had an idea. Yes, it would begin at home. He would use this new power to bring the revenge he always promised. He would return for Untamo, the man who had killed his family. Uh, that's not exactly correct, said a voice. Culervo screamed and held the broken knife out in front of him. Who said that? A hunched woman shuffled out from the trees and nodded in greeting. She was just a terrifying witch who lived alone in the swamp. You know, the standard stuff. Anyway, she was going to leave him alone, but he was wrong. His family wasn't dead. That couldn't be correct. This was his whole character arc. A boy whose parents had been murdered bent on revenge against the evil uncle who did it. All of this was coming as a huge surprise. The witch grinned and patted young Clairvaux's shoulder. It was a compelling narrative, true, but again, wrong. He understood, didn't he? Kulervo couldn't believe it. Well, then where were these long-lost family members anyway? The witch pointed north, toward Lapland. Kulervo's father had fled in the chaos. And, when the boy's mother came up for sale, he sent friends south to buy her in secret. He'd reestablished his tribe far from Untamo, and he was now a fisherman. 
If Kulervo followed the nearby river, he would be there in a couple of days. This was a lot to take in. Kulervo sat back, stunned. His whole life, everything he knew about himself, was wrong. His family was alive. This was the best day of his life. Or it was supposed to be. Kulervo dropped the broken knife as his father and mother ran to him. Now, everyone grieves differently. Some, like Kulervo's parents, weep and let emotions flow. Others, like Kulervo, meticulously and ruthlessly plan their revenge. Also, everyone rejoices differently. Some, like Kulervo's parents, smile and embrace joyfully. Others, like Kulervo, stand there stoically, unable to process what's going on. Young Clairvo learned that they had fled at the last possible moment, using the smoke from their homes and crops to cover their escape. As Clairvo knew, the fire had done enough to hide the fact that they weren't among the dead, and when they didn't come back in revenge, Untamo assumed that they were all dead, but in actuality, they had traveled to a land where nobody knew their name and started to rebuild. Untamo could have their ancestral lands. They had peace. Gradually, Calervo grew accustomed to life in his father's house. It was strange, working for someone who actually cared. And Calervo tried. He really did. But when he plowed the fields, he did it so fast that when he turned back around, the plow was completely destroyed. When he went fishing, he braced himself on the boat and tore it apart. His father decided that his son was strong and a little ruthless, and the parents had been having a hard time collecting taxes from the village they established. Maybe Calervo could make something work. And so he did. Riding back on his sleigh from the village with a chest full of money, Calervo was feeling pretty good. So good that, as he passed a young woman, he shouted out the best pickup line he could muster, a very discreet and classy, get up maid, into my sleigh, and lie back on my furs. She, of course, yelled back, essentially that he could do what he planned on doing with her to himself. He sneered and continued on. Kulervo tried the same move two more times, slightly honing his technique each attempt, until he rode up to a fourth and final young woman. He slowed his sled, winked, and said she looked cold. She needed a ride. He had a warm blanket and a bunch of apples in the back, and by apples he meant, but she cut him off. She knew what he meant, and the answer was no. Now, childhood trauma only accounts for so much. Yes, Calervo had believed he was being raised by the man who killed his family and sold his mother into slavery. And yes, when he did finally catch a break, he was routinely abused by the smith's wife. Calervo was a person who was probably in intense pain, and because of his profound abandonment and fear growing up, he didn't know how to deal with that pain. But that doesn't excuse what happened next. Calervo looked the road up and down. Hmm, they were out on the cliffs. The sun was setting and the snow was already starting to fall thicker. There wouldn't be anyone else out tonight. He looked at the girl, who had already started walking away. Kulervo had a sled, though, and with his considerable strength and magical powers, it wasn't difficult to get the young woman aboard. 
The next morning, she smiled at him, saying if she would have known it would be like that, she wouldn't have fought him. Her eyes told a different story. She just had to sidle up next to him, get close. There was that broken knife up by his things. That would be enough. He was showing off a chest full of gold and silver, the taxes he had collected for his family. Her fingers inched closer and closer to the knife handle. Even broken, it was sharp enough and long enough to get the job done. Clairvo continued talking on and on about his story. He was a nobody, he explained. It was actually a long and horrifying story, but the gist of it was that he was the son of a local landowner. The young woman smiled. Oh, that was so interesting. He should tell her more. Her fingers now grazed the knife. She was almost there. Clairvo told her his father's name was Clairvo. He had just been reunited with his family, actually. The young woman froze. What did he say? Clairvo repeated it, saying that his father basically owned the village. That's why he was out collecting taxes. The young woman pulled her hand back from the knife. She wrapped herself in furs and stood. You're Calero's son. And your mother, was she sold as a slave from a man named Untamo? Clairvo nodded. Yeah? Wait, how did she know? A lone tear fell from her eye as she pushed past Clairvo. Still wrapped in furs from his sled, she looked back, shook her head, and dropped from the cliffs. Clairvo ran to the cliff, and then a sickening feeling came over him. After he looked down and saw her body and his furs drifting among the rocks below, he ran to his sled and rushed back home. He pulled up and found his parents working in the house. They greeted him, but he ignored it, asking urgently if he had a sister. She had disappeared from the family years ago. It's when they first arrived in Lapland. She had been just a girl at the time, out watching the goats as they grazed. She was collecting flowers and lost track of time, and the goats knew the way home, but she didn't. Cold, she found her way to a village. Not the one that would be her father's, but another. And she slept in any warm place she could find, sometimes even fighting the rats for food. She sold her weavings for money and eventually had enough for a home and a roof. She had been on her way back from getting supplies when Clairvo had found her. Of course, the family only knew that she had disappeared. The wilderness was dangerous and, after the first winter, they could only assume she was dead. That's why they never told Clairvo about her. Clairvo didn't hear anything after that. He didn't hear that it wasn't his fault. Of course, his version of the story was that he met a girl and fooled around a little bit in his sled leaving out one crucial and horrifying detail. He had raped his sister, and he had driven her to her death. That's when he knew it. He didn't belong here. Kulerva had diverted from his sacred mission, the one thing that made sense to him in his life, taking revenge on Untamo and his tribe. It didn't matter that Untamo didn't kill his family. His uncle thought he did, and that was enough. Kulerva's life was nothing but pain, and he would only ever bring pain. He decided that he didn't deserve to live among these people, and if he didn't make it back, all the better. He told his family as much, and they, of course, were outraged. They couldn't lose a son and a daughter 
if he went to war against Untamo alone, he would die, just as so many in their tribe died the day Untamo brought war on them, and they had been nearly equally matched at the time. But Kulervo wouldn't listen. He turned to his father, asking if the man would weep for him. His father clenched his jaw and stared at his son. He wouldn't waste another thought on Clairvaux. He put his hopes on having another child. A better son who wouldn't do something like this to them. Well then, Clairvaux stood. He wouldn't weep for any of them either when they died. Nearly knocking the door off its hinges as he pushed it open, Clairvaux disappeared out into the snow. He had walked from Untamo's land, and he would walk toward it, even in winter. As he walked, he prayed. He prayed to the old man, the chief god, Uko. He prayed for a sword, one he could use to hold off a hundred men if he needed to. On the third day out, he heard a lightning strike and ran toward it. There, in the snow, surrounded by smoldering remains of trees, was a sword. Kulervo thanked the old man, pulled it from the ground, and continued on. Not all the people in Untamo's tribe were bad. Kulervo had some friends in the old village, people who had shown him kindness. But still, they would all die. In the end, Kulervo's sword didn't need to hold off 100 men. They weren't expecting an attack, and he went easily from house to house, burning and killing anyone who emerged. Untamo was last. On purpose, he sent his best out, and Kulervo took them out one by one before standing over the weeping and begging form of Untamo. After Kulervo finished with him, the farm was quiet. It was after this, seeing his revenge through, that Kulervo was filled with a profound sorrow, a feeling that he'd been masking with his quest for vengeance. He had two choices now, die or go home. He looked on the village filled with fresh destruction, if he was meant to die, he would have done so here. And so, he turned toward home, toward his parents and the family that he'd left. He would return to them, make amends, and try to put his past behind him. Walking north, he began to feel lighter again. Not happy, exactly. Kuleva wasn't one for happy. But maybe someday he could be. He could get to know his father and mother, work on his anger, and... What was that? Out in the distance, smoke rose. It resembled the smoke that he had left in Untamo's land. It resembled a tribe that had been massacred. Kulervo dropped his sword and sprinted for home, shaking his head. It couldn't be. He was coming home. He was going to be with them now. Through the smoke creeping over the fields... He knew it was over. The land was as quiet as Untamo's had been. It, too, had been sacked and burned. That's when he heard a scream from inside the still-burning house. He ran toward it, and he didn't hesitate as he dove into the blaze. Heat had never been a problem for him, even since he was a baby. And Kulervo strode through the embers and the ash until he found her, his mother, coughing in the corner. He wrenched her up and kicked his way out of the house just moments before it collapsed in a burning pile of flames. He held her close as she coughed. She was trying to say something. Something about a rival tribe who had come and attacked them overnight. 
but she was too far gone. Clairvaux's mother died in his arms. Even though he promised all of them he never would, Clairvaux held his mother, and he wept for his family. He could have saved them. The thought tore away at him if he had just given up his quest for vengeance, had let go of his anger, he could have been here to stop the attack. Instead, he destroyed an entire tribe by himself. He could have stayed and protected his family, but he chose his revenge instead. Kulervo staggered from the debris, away from the village by the way he had come. He was looking for something. He was looking for it. When at last he found the sword, Kulervo held it out in front of him. He asked the sword if it drank the blood of the innocent alongside the blood of the guilty, and the sword replied that it did. All swords did. Clairvaux nodded and buried the sword in his chest. That was the day the entire line of both of the two brothers ended. Six Lines Kalevala devotes exactly six lines to the fall of Untamo's village. Despite it being the completion of Kalevo's lifelong quest, and I think that's interesting, I think it's revealing about what Kalevo's true motivations really are. For some contrast, the poem devotes several stanzas to Kalevo denying that his family means anything to him before he returns to his ravaged home and spends several lines weeping. The story seems to be a commentary on revenge. In the sagas of the various peoples of the Nordic countries, to say revenge is a common theme is an understatement. Sometimes it seems like it's the only theme. I mean, think back to the Volsungs and Arawad for two super prominent examples from this podcast alone. This one, though, it does something different. Clairvaux doesn't need to avenge his family. He can choose to live in peace, and unlike a lot of sagas, there's no voice in his ear spurring him onward. He's a one-man cautionary tale to the theme of following your vengeance to the bitter end, as seems so prominent in many of these stories. Was Clairvaux too broken, too scarred from his experiences to be anything else? I'm not sure. The moral that's stated at the end of the story is that you should treat your children well, or they'll end up like Clairvaux. Though, I think the type to sell their child into slavery is probably not going to be the ideal audience for that bit of wisdom. I read that the story is unique among folklore in its realistic depiction of the effect of child abuse that has an effect on a person into adulthood. Some trivia about this story. It's pretty famous, and it's actually the first story J.R.R. Tolkien tried to write. He wrote it as a short story that wasn't published in his lifetime. But up until his go at this in 1914, he'd only written poetry. So his adaptation of this was his first time writing prose. It was edited and published in 2010, and the Telegraph called it, quote, his undeniably darkest work. That's it for this week. Next week, we're in Irish folklore, where Dying Queen knows exactly what genre of story she's in, mourns her husband about evil stepmothers. Of course, he doesn't listen at all. I want to say thanks to Bubba5001, the IOT Buttercat, nice, Prisoner Number 6, Smoky Boy 92 BYL Chain, Grimbo, Gina Morella, MCART1916, Mod Lass, I'm not listening. I mean, you kind of are, though. Thanks for the five-star review, too. Tuppy274, Nixisa, and Coconut Killer for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. 
thanks so much for listening and for your review. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. And there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of Cooking with Coolio, five-star meals at a one-star price, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show. I don't have anything snarky to say about Cooking with Coolio. Apparently the guy's been cooking for a long time and has a fairly high-rated cookbook out. Who knew? Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Baskethead from Zulu folklore in Southern Africa. Now, when an ox was slaughtered in Zulu society, they threw a slaughter party, which is a rough name for something that's actually really nice. They share the ox around, and women are invited to come with their baskets and gather ox meat. Unfortunately, some things show up that aren't invited, like Baskethead. It's like a hyena the size of a dire wolf, also with a basket on its head. It still has the sharp teeth and claws, though, so it can be very convincing in getting people to climb aboard. It's not super picky, but it does prefer human brains. Unfortunately, our brains are the most protected part of our body. Well, long ago, Basket had worked out a way to crack that particular nut. Basically, he just takes us to a nearest cliff and throws us off of it. He picks his way down, and if the fall didn't expose some brain, he'll scoop the body back up in his head and try again. Fortunately, Basket Head is super easy to trick. Basically, if he picks you up, go along with it, because he's hopelessly stupid. Despite always going to the same cliff, if you give him directions, he'll take them. Point him toward the forest, and then get to work. For the walk through the forest, discreetly pluck branches and leaves from the trees, until you've collected basically any weight at all. When you get close to a low-hanging, sturdy branch, grab onto it and pull yourself up. He'll keep taking you all the way to the cliff. Toss off a basket head full of branches and leaves, and be confused that this has happened to him for the 500th time. Seriously though, once the first person figured this out, everyone else in the village kept using the same tactic, and I think Baskethead is believed to be extinct now. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and today's episode was written and hosted by me, Jason Weiser. Our story editor was Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.